like to invite Alex and Hunter to come on up and sit with us. Our second scripture reading this morning is wise words from Proverbs. They are brief but powerful. Speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And may these words continue to resonate with us in our lives. I'm going to offer just a brief reflection this morning because the words of the gentleman behind me are much more powerful than what I could ever offer. And so I want to leave as much time for them as I can. But I want to frame what they have to say with these words. For to be powerless is to lack the strength, resources, authority, or a capacity to act. It means living without having a voice at least a voice that is heard or paid attention to by those in power. And as scripture informs us, we are to speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute, to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. To fight for the powerless then is synonymous with being an advocate by using our voice and taking action. The first time I realized that I was an advocate was when I was caring for my aging parents. We were in the emergency one, one evening with my mom, who was quite sick, and my dad and I were by her side. The nurse who was attending to my mother was extremely nice to us, but the nurse left to attend to the patient in the bed one curtained room over and became belligerent with this poor old man who was alone and who clearly couldn't hear well or couldn't even seem to make sense of where he was. This man had no advocate. The disparity in treatment between this vulnerable soul and my mother was shocking. And sadly, this kind of disparity happens every day in numerous ways and results in deep and lasting harm to our brothers and sisters. And as we know, it is often the poor or the destitute or the minority or the immigrant or the person of color or the person with a sexual orientation unlike ours who needs advocates the most. They need us to speak up. Although I was my mom's advocate that day, and although I lifted up a prayer and felt terribly for the person in the room next door, I did not stand up for that poor man being treated by the nurse. I was afraid. I was afraid that if I stood up for him, it would affect the care my mom would have received. But I was wrong. I was terribly wrong. And it is fear, isn't it, that often keeps us from speaking up or moving our feet or defending the rights of others. But let us find courage in the words that Jesus spoke over and over again, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And as someone said, the beauty of standing up for others' rights is that others see you standing and stand up as well. And the psalmist said it beautifully, when will you learn that to act justly, justly and with integrity will bring mutual blessing to all? Speak out for justice and empower the weak and the needy. For if we are to be the church, we are to be these advocates, not just for our families and friends, but especially for the vulnerable who may not have no other voice. 
Well, we are blessed this morning to hear from two very special guests who have dedicated themselves to fighting for the powerless, but they need our help. And so I want you to stick around after coffee hour and continue the conversation with both of them. Um, first, I want to introduce you to Alec Levesque, whose both of their, the gentlemen's bios are on the back of your um, bulletin. But Alex is the CEO of Automotive Mentoring Group, who has worked tirelessly and dedicated his life to work with Chicago gang members to help them find an alternative path. Alex, we're so grateful you're with us this day. Good morning, everyone. Can everyone hear me okay? I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to have to give you the Reader's Digest version of my life and what I'm doing. My background is architecture. I worked in architecture working for Skidmore, Orange & Merrill for about nine years designing office buildings. And driving through the inner cities, uh, I got a lesson in obedience. And obedience, I realize, is always doing something that you'd rather not be doing. You know, it's always your, your mother that says, you know, go and sit over there like I told you, and you don't want to sit, but you do it out of obedience. So this was a lesson in obedience because I was driving in my really nice Porsche and driving my, uh, wearing my designer suits to work every day uh, as an architect and driving through the inner cities and looking at all of this gang violence and gun violence and it's interesting because the song is Do Something, and I don't know these guys, but that's what happened. I was driving along one day, and I was like, Lord, somebody ought to do something about this. This is a mess. This is like a runaway train, and I didn't get an answer. I just kept driving, and, and maybe about three months later, I was like, somebody ought to do something about this. This is a mess. Every day it's the same. And one day, the Lord just gave me a simple spiritual tap on the shoulder and said, what about you, son? Why don't you do something? And I was like, oh, no, Lord. <laughs> Not me. I don't want no parts of that. I got a nice job. I got a nice car. Life is okay. I don't want no parts of that. But then I got that tap again about two months later, and I was like, okay, Lord, I surrender. And since then, I've created the Automotive Mentoring Group. My responsibility is dealing with the estimated 180,000 gang members in Chicago and trying to teach them how to restore classic cars from 1930 through 1972, trying to get them to go back to school to Illinois Institute of Technology to get their high school diploma, which I do, try to get them enrolled in five community colleges that have excellent automotive programs, which I do, and trying to get them working with the 47 hiring partners that we have that agree to hire them for five years. I'm trying to get them off the street to keep them from killing each other, but most of all, I'm trying to teach them to be better fathers and better mothers to the children that they already have because I believe that that is the real answer to all this gun violence and gang violence in Chicago, which is to teach the next generation how to be kind. Lastly, I'm going to say the reason why I'm here is because of a good friend of mine, Ellie Roberts, who introduced me to this church. She saw a story about me on television, I believe, and she called me. And from that, this church 
has been instrumental in helping me from a financial standpoint do this work. It's hard work. It's difficult work. It's dangerous work. But it's worth it. So you guys are my partners in this fight against gun violence and gang violence in Chicago. And I asked a year ago that I could come here so I could tell each one of you thank you for what you do. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for partnering up with me. And I don't say that lightly. If you meet me for coffee in the yard, you're going to hear me say it over and over again. Thank you for what you do because I can't do it by myself. Thank you so much. God bless you. I just want um, to ask Alex one more thing. Alex, you mentioned when, um, first of all, come and visit. His shop is amazing. And um, come and see the work that they do. Their shop is near Midway Airport. It's not far from here. So come and visit. He would welcome you. Um, but Alex, say a little bit about the importance of mentors and how you would love for maybe some of us to get involved in walking with these young men and women and, and how that can make an impact in their lives. Okay. The mentoring part is extremely important. Uh, I never really expected or wanted to be a mentor, but what I realized with these young men and women in Chicago is that they need exposure. That is the missing link. You know, uh, if you look at the statistics in Chicago and you talk about all of the killings that are there, it's usually somebody who gets shot in Chicago is shot within the four square block area that they live in. And that's because that's, that's the distance that they travel. They never go outside of that area. So my job, part of my job, is to try to give them exposure, to try to let them see more than they're able to see so that they can dream bigger than they're able to dream. I have a good friend of mine named Greg Donnelly who lives in Hinsdale, and he invited me to the Roof Lake Country Club to have lunch with him one day, and I bought three, two boys from Inglewood, two black boys, and one uh, a Hispanic boy from Humble Park. And he was surprised when I showed up with these boys. I'm like, hey, man, we're together. But we were able to have lunch at the Roof Lake Country Club, and that was my first time being in Hinsdale, my first time being to the Roof Lake, to any country club for that matter. So it was exposure for me, and it was exposure for them. And on the way back, guess what happened? We stopped by the Ferrari dealership. <laughs> We walked in there and we met George, the salesman. And George gave each one of them his card. And he said, when you get ready to buy your first Ferrari, come back and see me because I'm your salesman. And I told him, listen, all of these guys you see driving these Ferraris uh, in the rap videos, you're way ahead of them because you got your own salesman and they're just borrowing these cars. <laughs> it's all a matter of exposure and trying to get these guys to see outside of the four square block area. Uh, I don't want to take up any more time because we have somebody else who has a lot to say. Uh, but I do want to tell you this. I expect that when I go out in this yard that there's a long line of people waiting to talk to me because I want to tell you about the Holy Rollers Hot Rod Church and what we do with that. The Holy Rollers. Can you believe it? Hot Rod Church. I want to tell you about that. And I want to tell you about all of this other mentoring uh, initiatives that we take to really change and mostly save uh, lives. And you guys don't realize it. You didn't realize it this morning when you got out of bed that you guys are a part of this. 
You're partners with me. You got a brother in Chicago that's going into these neighborhoods that are saving these guys. So uh, you, you need to meet me and you need to talk to me about it. Thanks again. Thank you, Alex. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I know some of you were here when Hunter Wiggins came and spoke up in Plymouth Hall. He did an amazing job of um, doing the research and fairly pointing out what has been happening along our borders. And so if you missed that evening, it is on our Facebook page, and I invite you and encourage you to listen to the entire interview and presentation by Hunter. But I wanted Hunter to come back today and share with all of you the work that he's doing along our borders and how his faith has informed that and impacted him. There's also a handout that is also going to be on the tables at Coffee Hour that tells a beautiful story that Hunter wrote about um, his experience there and also um, a list of things that we can do to be helping as well. And so, Hunter, we are delighted that you were back with us this morning. Thanks, Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Um, uh, as Meredith said, I, I did come here and talk, I think it was about an hour and 15 minutes long, including questions. So it's a long video, but there's an awful lot in there. And if you find it helpful, I hope you'll uh, use it to become more informed about what's going on on the border. Um, so Meredith told me you're also a very punctual church, and I don't know how long what I'm going to say takes, so I'm just going to talk really fast, which is my natural way of doing things anyway. And I want to start off by saying that there is actually an error in your um, uh, thing from today, your bulletin from today, and actually the error tells the whole story of what I'm going to tell you anyway, because the error is it says Hunter Wiggins, immigration attorney. I'm not an immigration attorney. I'm a lawyer who has become a person who has gotten informed about immigration and used my legal skills to do immigration law for people who need it. It was a matter of movement. I, I haven't been an immigration lawyer. I'm a banking lawyer. Like, can you think of two things less related? But that's what's happening. So, and, and that's really gonna talk a little bit about sort of what I'm gonna talk about for the rest of the morning, which is, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what's going on in the border. The story does a better job of describing an individual thing, but it is as bad as you can imagine. It is worse than you can imagine. I can't clean it up any other way. If your heart's broken, you're, you're right to have your heart broken. If your heart's not broken yet, learn more, it'll happen. Folks are coming from horrifically violent and dangerous places. Sometimes with nothing more than the shirt on their back, they are braving life and limb and giving up every dollar they have to travel through Mexico, which is a very dangerous place, to get to our border to be put in prison. And they, when I say detention center, I want you to know, I'm going in three hours, I'm getting on another plane. They are prisons. Folks are in jumpsuits, they are walking on lines, they have no freedom of movement, nothing. It's not to be, I'm not trying to be too heavy, but that's the reality, that's where we are. So I hope to tell this story, now we're gonna pick it up. What I do with other people down there is we meet with folks in these prisons, in these detention centers, and we try to tell them where they are and what's happening to them. They're often very disoriented. Most of them don't have any idea where they are and why they're there. They speak Spanish. Uh, I'm just going to be frank. Some of the border guards have great compassion. Many of them lie. Many of them lie and are cruel and tell people that they can't stay, that they have no chance of hope, that they should leave. And so what we do is we try to give them information about where they stand. We evaluate what their cases are under our law, which changes every week, and I am not exaggerating. 
and we try to figure out whether we can represent them and help them seek asylum in our country. But what I don't want to do is just have you walk away with this and think, okay, that's great that he does that. He's a lawyer. He's going to Texas. I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to go to Texas. It's 108 degrees today. I, it's not for me. That's okay. What I hope to do is to leave us all with an opportunity to, to think of something that we can do to help make this world the place that it's supposed to be. So one of my heroes is a guy named Brian Stevenson. Anyone ever heard of him? So, okay, Brian Stevenson is a lawyer. He has spent his whole career representing people on death row and children who have been put in prison for life sentences for, without possibility of parole, even for crimes that aren't even violent. He's also the founder of something called the Equal Justice Initiative, which is, a, and they created a new civil rights museum in Montgomery, Alabama, that tells the story of America's history of lynching and racial terrorism. And for all that, he is a really hopeful guy. So he has this book called Just Mercy that I would recommend to anybody. And Stevenson tells a story about a case he was working on in Alabama involving a man who was put on death row for a murder, a crime that he didn't commit. And during the appeals hearings, he was asked to give a talk at a local church about the case. And there were a lot of people in the church community whose support for his client was sort of lukewarm or muted, not because they didn't thought he was guilty. They actually knew he wasn't guilty. It was because he had had an extramarital affair and he wasn't active in his church. And so this is a quote from Stevenson and what I want to talk a little bit about for the next couple minutes. The quote is, at the church meeting, I spoke mostly about Walter's case, but I also reminded people that when the woman accused of adultery was brought to Jesus, he told the accusers who wanted to stone her to death, let he who was without sin cast the first stone. The woman's accusers retreated, and Jesus forgave her and urged her to sin no more. But today, in our self-righteousness, our fear and our anger have caused even the Christians to hurl stones at the people who fall down even when we know we should forgive or show compassion. I told the congregation we can't simply watch what happens. I told them we have to be stone catchers. And that stone catcher image has stuck with me, and it's what I want to recommend for all of us. There's three great things about this image, I think, that in anything that we want to try to do. One is to be a stone catcher in this model, it requires movement. It requires action. And think back to that parable that I think most of us know. Big crowd, one woman in the middle, lots of people with rocks. There's only one place to be in that to be a stone catcher, isn't there? You go in the middle with the woman. That's where you can catch them. You can't catch them from being on the outside. You can, you can be unhappy, you can be disappointed, you can even disagree with the people who want to throw the stones, but you can't catch them if you don't go in the middle. And I want to suggest that what we should do when we talk about fighting for the powerless is we have to pick a side. And that side has to be with that woman in the middle. And when you get there, guess what happens? Well, you can imagine from that vision. They throw rocks at you too. And they throw rocks, and you're going to catch one because we're strong and we're well-fed and we're well-educated and we're wealthy. And we're going to catch one and we're going to catch another, we're going to catch another, we're going to catch another. And eventually we're going to say, who is throwing these rocks? And how did this come to be? Why is this happening? And you become personally invested because it's not just an abstract policy or something that you're really unhappy that our state or our government or somebody else is doing. It's happening to you. In my case, it's happening to Yasmeni. It's happening to Enrique. It's happening to Evangelina and it's happening to their kids. It is not, oh, those poor people. It's us. And then you start thinking about maybe how did this situation happen? Why is this happening? 
Is it happening for a good reason? Is it happening because this is deserved? Is it earned? Well, maybe in some cases it is, and what's required is mercy. But in some cases, you might be digging a little bit more deeper. And if you're there on the ground and you are facing somebody, you will start asking the right questions because you're going to ask the practical questions. You're going to ask the ones that actually really matter to changing the situation. I want to give you a couple examples of the kind of questions that I'm being asked and I'm answering down in Texas. So one thing that people say is, why don't they just cross where it's legal? I don't understand. There's, there's, there's these checkpoints. Why don't they just go there? And you know what? I got to admit, the first time I heard that, I thought, yeah, why not? And then you start talking to the folks who are trying to do this, and you learn a lot of different things. Some of them you learn don't even know that that, that situation exists. Some of them have no education. They are just entirely reactive in their lives. Others, like the story you'll read about if you go grab it, you'll learn about a family of four who was traveling on their way to the border, wanted to go to a crossing, and was abducted by a gang and forced to pay to cross in a place that wasn't a border crossing because the gangs don't row you across at the border cross, right at the, at the point of entry. You'll find that other people have been turned away. We have, we have clients who have shown up at the point of entry and have been told, nope, not today. Nope, come back in three weeks. And these are folks who are down to the last dollar with their children. And they are then sent to the side of Juarez or Nuevo Laredo into places where they are in incredible danger. And I just want you to think whether you do that or whether you might row across in a boat. Another example of a question that people ask, like, your country's all messed up. Why come? Like, don't come to us to solve your problems. And I will tell you that just at least one example is if you want to, if, you, if you're this thing, you start looking into the history of Central America in this particular instance, and you start to realize, gee, in the 1980s, the U.S. actually sent a lot of military folks and hundreds of millions of dollars to support a civil war in El Salvador. From 1980 to 1992, hundreds of millions of dollars. And in El Salvador, for 10 years, 75,000 civilians were killed in a country that's half the size of Chicago. We talk about the, the violence in Chicago, and it is real and it is horrible. It is one-tenth what the people of El Salvador experienced in the 1980s, in part because of our efforts to prop up one end of a civil war. So people fled, and they fled to places including the United States. And some of them wound up in Los Angeles, in South Central Los Angeles, in the middle of what was gang country then. And that's where MS-13, that is so much in the news, came from. Not El Salvador, Los Angeles. The Pico Union neighborhood of Los Angeles. They have studied it, they've got it down to the block. We created MS-13. And we sent it back when those people committed crimes. They were put on planes and deported, and I get why we did that, but they were sent back into a country that we had helped completely destroy the civil society. And the gangs thrived and grew, and they do own large swaths of, of whole countries down there. And that is part of the problem. But understanding the context, I think, really matters, and it matters if you're somebody who's on the ground with these folks. Finally, the last thought I had was that if you're going to be a stone catcher, at least against big, big powerful things, like whether it's gun violence or gangs or the federal government, you're going to lose a lot. And the people you care about are going to lose a lot. The people who are in power often write the rules. In the case of what's happening on the border, they are changing those rules every week to make it harder for people to obtain asylum and to make it more painful for anyone who tries. And if you do the stone catching I'm talking about in any way, shape, or form, wherever you do it, your heart will be broken more than once probably. 
But when you engage, I will just tell you that you get this amazing chance, even in a small way, to use your skills, your power, your gifts, to set part of the world right. Look, I think we all know, whether it's from our faith or our own experiences, or just because we, the movies that grab our hearts, we all know that we weren't made for this. It's wrong when the powerful people hurt the weak. When cruelty wins and when mercy is laughed at, we all know it's wrong. And when I can tell you that when I engage in standing up for the weak, it's a concrete chance for me to remember, and I appreciate the fact that we got Elton John and Michael Jackson today. I'm going to throw in another great theologian, which is Christopher Robin who said to Winnie the Pooh, remember you are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. You have more to offer than you're aware of, and those opportunities present themselves when you go put yourself in proximity with the people who need it. I'm gonna end with one little story. We started doing this stuff about 15 months ago, and about four months in, you might remember there was a huge flood down in Houston, and a lot of these folks are in Texas. The judges in Houston were all flooded out, so these judges in Miami started hearing the cases. Um, of our clients down in Houston. They did it remotely with these little TV screens. And we, had, we were just finding our feet in this. And I mean, none of us were immigration lawyers. We're all better now, but lots of people are starting up just now. They don't know what they're doing. And this judge from Miami didn't know how bumbling we were, uh, but she had to hear our cases 10 hours a day. And it wasn't me, but it was another, another colleague of mine who was there, and she, she was just, she was kind of frustrated. Um, we, sometimes we didn't know the law, sometimes we didn't know the procedure, um, and she had to hear us for two weeks. And about, and I, this still sticks with me, about midway through the second week, she finishes up one of the hearings, and she was tough. I mean, like, she, she wasn't, like, it's not like she was a bleeding heart and gave away, you know, asylum when it wasn't appropriate, and she was tough on us. But at the end of one hearing, uh, my colleague, Mike, uh, she says, uh, counsel, I'd like to get your personal number because I'd like to talk to you. Uh, after this about an unrelated matter. The, the attorney from the government started to scratch. She's like, no, it's, it's, not, it's not your matter. It's okay. So gives a phone number. Judge calls um, my colleague, Mike, and she goes, look, here, here's the deal. There's this woman who's appearing in my court in Miami, and I think she's got a case, but she doesn't know what to do. She can't describe it. She doesn't know how to say things right, and I think that I'm not going to be able to find a way to rule for her if she doesn't get some help. So Mike was surprised. We were all surprised. And what she said to him was, look, you guys are a pain in the ass sometimes, and you really don't know what you're doing. But this woman doesn't have anybody else, and you seem to really care. And what I would say is, the reason that stuck with me is, I wish that for all of us, that we find whatever our thing is and find someone to say that about us. Thanks. Thanks.